I'd like to direct your attention in the hours which are mine during this week to the book of Jonah. Now, if two or three pages of your Bible stick together, you're liable to miss it. (laughs) The Old Testament prophets are men for all seasons. Many of their words sound as if they had come right off the front pages of our newspaper. Words like war and peace, violence, social justice, the meaning of love, fidelity, truth. These are the themes for which the stage setting may have changed somewhat, but the message is timely and timeless. The prophets were the voice of Israel's conscience, and although Israel's leaders and people didn't always follow their conscience, at least they had one. And the prophets would not let it die. So while all of the rest has been forgotten in the dust of history, the words of the prophets continue to ring down the corridors of time, refusing to let anyone sleep in their complacency. The prophets then, as now, had a twofold responsibility. Their first task was to comfort the afflicted. Their second task, to afflict the comfortable. (laughs) And the prophets have a way of putting a burr under your spiritual saddle with the result that you discover you are scratching for weeks to come. Now, let me invite you to meet one, Jonah by name, but I must warn you, it's liable to be your conscience you are meeting. Jonah lived approximately 800 years before the birth of Christ. That doesn't bother you, does it? It's far more relevant than the current issue of Time magazine. It's relevant because it's revealed. But unfortunately, it got labeled with the minor prophets. And that was a serious casualty. May I remind you that the minor prophets have nothing to do with their significance, simply their size. All 12 minor prophets only comprise 67 chapters of Scripture, whereas one of the major prophets, the prophecy of Isaiah, has 66 chapters in one book. Size does not determine significance. The three smallest bones in your body are in your ear. They are very difficult to discover. Fortunately for medical students in an anatomy class, they exist on both sides. So if you miss them on one side, you can pick them up on the other. The malleus, the incus, and the stapes, the smallest of bones. But if you are hearing what I am saying, you are hearing it only because you have these three bones and they are in proper functioning order. Their size does not determine their significance. Now, Paul said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. That includes Ecclesiastes. 
You hit your head against the ceiling of that book recently? Second Chronicles. Suppose the quality of your spiritual life were determined by how much of Second Chronicles you know. How would you make out? Habakkuk. Oh. <laughs> By the way, what are you people going to do when you get home to heaven and meet it? So here you're going to be walking down Praise Avenue and Hallelujah Boulevard, and you run into this guy and introduce yourself to him and say, Hi, I'm Hendricks. What's your name? He says, Habakkuk. Oh, great. When did you live? Oh, a number of years before the birth of Christ. 600 plus. Oh, it's interesting. Must have been fascinating. Exciting. What'd you do? I wrote a book. Oh, that's interesting. I wrote a book, too. What'd you call your book? Habakkuk. You had an ego problem, too, huh? <laughs> Who published it? God. <laughs> you ever read it? No, I don't think I have. It's in the Bible. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. My judgment, ladies and gentlemen, that some of the most serious problems that we are facing in the evangelical church today are the direct product of men and women who are total strangers to the truths of the minor prophets. And the disease is beginning to show up. Now, there are a few books in the Bible that have been as maligned, as viciously attacked, and ridiculed as Jonah. And that fact tells you something very significant about the book. Namely, critics never waste their time on secondary targets. They always concentrate. On the biggies. There are four basic approaches to this book that I want to set before you. I wish I could say that they were held only by liberals, at least the first three. But unfortunately, that is not true. Number one, there are many people who see the book as legendary fiction. In other words, it's an ancient legend that has come down to us, but not in the least does it bear the stamp of historicity. It's like Goldilocks or the Three Bears. Real nice stories for children, but nobody considers them historical. There's another group who think the book is a parable. That is a parable of God's mercy to the world. They would say it is a legend, but it's a legend with a message. Like Alice in Wonderland, written by a brilliant, eminent philosopher for his children. Well, there's another point of view, and it's become quite popular of late. And that is, it's an allegory. Jonah really represents Israel cast into the sea of the nations. And her mission to the world is outlined in this book. It's not historical, it's allegorical. 
So we must go beneath the surface of the book to discover the hidden meaning. Now, as you may suspect, I reject all of these suggestions totally and take a fourth view. Namely, it is historical. In this book, we have a record of what actually happened to the prophet Jonah. And I believe that for three reasons that I would like to share with you. And for those of you particularly who are interested in teaching the word of God, I hope that you do your homework before you go into your classroom. Because many of the young people, many of the children today who are under the teaching of the Word of God are already deeply infected with critical perspectives. I just introduced a man to Christ earlier in the summer. I have been working with this man for 12 years. He is a graduate of a church-related college where he was poisoned with critical views of the scriptures. And he told me it took me 12 years to dislodge my thinking. And about six of those years he was under the teaching of the word of God. And it was line upon line and line upon line and precept upon precept and precept upon precept and here a little and there a little and I would just peel off the layers of an onion. Because you see, many people go to a university or to a church-related school where there are individuals who have the scholarship to ask the right questions even if they don't have the scholarship to provide the answer. And the result is some little kid gets under a Ph.D. who makes fun of the scriptures and that wipes him out. And this particular institution to which I refer, where this man was graduated, they started out a required course for every freshman by saying, how many of you believe that the Bible is the word of God? And, of course, all these little kids from East Texas and so forth, you know, put up their hand like this. And he'd pick up a copy of the scriptures and say, I'd just like you to know that in this university, this is what we think concerning the Bible. Having arranged to open the window beforehand, he would toss the book right through the window and say, that's where we begin. You see, the only absolute of the modern mind is there are no absolutes. Now let me show you how it works out. First of all, I believe this is historical because Jonah was an historical personage. That is, he actually lived in space and time. And we have a record of his life and of his ministry. Now, if you have a Bible, turn back with me for just a moment to 2 Kings chapter 14. I want you to see firsthand. 2 Kings chapter 14. This is an historical book, thoroughly documented. And I want to begin reading at verse 23. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, will you please put out in the margin, Jeroboam the second. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned forty-one years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart. From all the sins of Jeroboam, that's number one, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Now notice verse 35. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah 
according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath Hefer. Will you note that in this book we have an historical reference to Jonah in an historical book. And we're given five historical clues regarding this individual. We are told his name. Secondly, we are told the nature of his ministry. He was a prophet who communicated the word of God. Third, we are told his genealogy. He was the son of Amittai. Fourth, we are told the city from which he came, Gath-Hefer, which has been excavated. It is located four miles north of Nazareth. And fifth, we are told the specific prophecy that he made regarding this king that there would be a restoration. So Jonah actually lived in space and time. And by the way, he had a ministry beyond the ministry recorded in the book which bears his name. There's a second reason why I believe it's historical. And that is, it bears the stamp of history. And to treat the book as an allegory or parable is to pervert the text. It's to do damage to the material. This book has the fingerprints of fact all over it. And you don't have to read it very often to be impressed with its historical reality. Now, interestingly enough, this is the way the Jews have interpreted it from the earliest of time. Jonah was always included in the Old Testament canon. And by the way, that is not true of many books and some that are in the canon. But Jonah was always regarded by the Jews as historical fact. Furthermore, from the earliest time in the history of the church, the Christian church accepted it as historical fact. No question was ever raised by Jews or Christians till about a hundred years ago. During the 19th century, the rationalistic critics moved in. And they were stumped by the obvious references to the supernatural. Now, my friends, whenever you encounter the supernatural in the record, you are compelled to do one of two things. Either you are compelled to submit because it is supernatural, or you are compelled to substitute a humanistic, rationalistic explanation of the data. And that's the route they went. Very interesting, because that's exactly the problem that Jesus Christ faced with the opposition in his day. You remember Mark chapter 11? You have a record of our Lord's cleansing the temple. And after that event, the religious leaders said, what's your authority? Where'd you get it? The implication is, we didn't give it to you, and friend, if we didn't give it to you, you ain't got it. And Jesus said, let me ask you a question. The baptism of John, was it of God or of men? Uh, just a minute. And they went into a huddle. And in the huddle, they said, boys, we got a rhubarb. <laughs> because if we say of God, then he'll say, why didn't you follow him? And if we say of men, man, they'll kill us. 
So they come out of their huddle with the agnostic, we done now. <laughs> and I always pictured a layman on the sidelines saying, you done now. What in the world do you think we pay you for? <laughs> Here's the most important religionist personage in the last 25 years, and you don't have an explanation for it. We're not getting value received. See, Jesus put his finger right on the heart of the issue. The problem was not authority. The problem was obedience. They didn't want to repent as John called them to do, and they were not about to come under the teaching of Jesus Christ. And the same thing is true today in the Scriptures. You either accept the supernatural and you bow before it in worship. Or you got to find some nice explanation that it was a parable. It was a legend. Anything except historical fact. But there's a third reason, and this is the clincher to me. Jesus Christ plainly regarded the book as history. I want to give you a passage of scripture that we're going to turn to and jot down in your notes if you're taking them. It's Matthew chapter 12. I want to begin reading at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now I want you to underline something in your Bible. For just as, underline that, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so, underline that, just as so, Shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is hinging the fact of the resurrection on the fact of Jonah's experience. And then he gives two events. In verse 41, the men of Nineveh shall stand up against this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And secondly, the queen of the south shall rise up against this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. My friend, they wouldn't walk five miles down the road from Jer Jerusalem to Bethlehem to find out if it was true. Jesus Christ says the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south, both historical individuals, will rise up in judgment against this generation, seeking a sign but repudiating the sign that was given to them, the sign of the prophet Jonah. So really to question the history of the book of Jonah is to malign Jesus Christ. And I have always been compelled to accept his testimony over the testimony of the critics. Now let's take a moment to get an overview of the book. I'm going to put a little outline on the screen for you that you can jot down that we'll use as a basis of our study. Let's begin with a title for the book. I love to call this book The Diary of Disobedience. Whenever you study a book of the Bible, always try to get a label for it that will bring back its contents to you. 
And one of the keys is to compare and contrast the beginning and the end of the book. You see, Jonah was the A-W-O-L prophet. When the book opens, he's absent without leave. When it closes, he's angry without love. And that's the plot of the book. Now, this book breaks open into two main divisions. There is a major scene between chapters 2 and 3. The first two chapters provide the first commission. The last two chapters provide the second commission. So if you simply remember that it's a four-chapter book, it's broken in half, first two provide the first two commission, last two the second commission. Let me give you another clue to bring back its contents. The first commission begins in disobedience. And it ends in obedience. The second commission begins in obedience. And it ends in disobedience. So you can see, Jonah would never make a good Christian novel. Don't look at me that way. Because it doesn't end... They were married and lived happily ever after. But we'll see how that develops in time. Now, let me give you some labels to put on these chapters. In chapter 1, Jonah is running away from God. In chapter 2, he's running back to God. Fast. In chapter 3, he's running with God. And in chapter 4, he's running ahead of God. And I'm going to give you four little arrows that will make this book stick in your mind for the rest of your life. Are you ready for that? We will not charge you additional tuition. (laughs) This may not be the most brilliant thing I give you, but you may rise up and call me blessed in all succeeding generations. (laughs) Because it will help you to remember the book. See, in the first chapter, I said he's going away from God. So let's draw us an arrow down. In chapter 2, he's running back to God. In chapter 3, he's running with God. And in chapter 4, he's ahead of God. I was invited by the Navy a number of years ago to conduct a Bible teaching mission on a number of bases. And I thought, well, I want to get something that they can plug into. So I selected Jonah, called him the A-W-O-L sailor. And I had a ball with the thing. And I used an overhead and I had these little arrows. Well, man, it must have been 16 years later. I ran into this kid. And he said, hey, I remember you. You were out of Barber's Point. Yeah, I guess I was. And then he told me the event. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Never forgotten that. Well, he said, neither have I. I said, how you doing, man? Oh, he said, I'll tell you how I'm doing. And by the grace of God. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll see where you are during the course of this week. The plot of this book involves the interweaving of two personalities, Jehovah and Jonah. There is in this book the revelation of the will of God by the Lord. And there is the response to the will of God by the prophet. 
You see, revelation in the nature of the case demands a response. The moment God says something, you are obligated to do something. Now, from the standpoint of the prophet, there is a clash of wills. And I want you to see this conflict as it unfolds. Four rounds, winner take all. So to give you a little clue on that, let me give you four words to write down here about the prophet. These are the four we're going to study. In chapter 1, we see the prodigal prophet. In chapter 2, we see the praying prophet. In chapter 3, the preaching prophet. And in chapter 4, the pouting prophet. Last scene we're going to have is of Jonah sucking on his thumb. Saying, I told you so. And if you listened to me, we wouldn't have gotten into that. Oh, it's tremendous. Fasten your safety belts. Now, the last thing I want to do tonight is in the area of application. I want to share with you five statements regarding the will of God that emanate from the book of Jonah. And then as we weave our way through this book, watch how often they come to the surface. Number one, God will always reveal His will to the believing heart. God will always reveal His will to the believing heart. He is in Jonah. He is throughout the Scriptures. And He is in your experience. Jot down two passages of Scripture. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Verses most of you could quote from memory. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by or on the basis of the mercies of God. Will you mark that? Don't ever ask a new convert to give something to God. Fill a new convert's mind with what God has given him. See, God never asks you to give anything to him until he's given you the greatest gift he could ever give to an individual. On the basis of what God has done for you, and man, he's taken 11 chapters to spell it out. I want you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. And don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're going to come back to that in a moment. The reprogramming and restructuring of your mind. That you may put to the test what is the will of God. I mean that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The second passage I want you to write down is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. Please note he doesn't say don't use it. He says don't lean on it. In all of your ways acknowledge him, promise, and he what? will, shall direct your path. See, my friends, God is far more interested in revealing His will than you are in doing it. Just just paste that in your hat. Can't take it any other way? Take it by faith. See, if God has a plan, then it's reasonable that He will reveal that plan and He's perfectly capable of communicating it with you. That's no hang-up with Him. That teaches me theologically that the burden of responsibility in the will of God is on Him, not on you. See, God's not playing a game of hide-and-seek. 
I spend so much time with young people, it's kind of fun to talk to them about the will of God. Because they have the idea God's playing a game of hide-and-seek right now. <laughs> hey, you didn't find it, did you? <laughs> now, please note, God's will may not be revealed the way you want it revealed. And at the time, you want it. Uh, we could have gone all night without bringing that up. You know, I have a favorite indoor sport. You know what it is? Writing scripts for God. Anybody else here ever do that? I am always writing God's scripts, and He never reads them. I wrote the script for my father's salvation for 42 years, and God never read it. When my father finally came to Christ, I'm still sitting down trying to figure out how it all came together. But he didn't consult me. <laughs> he just brought him to himself. If I were to tell you the story, just blow your mind. Because I haven't recovered from it after all of these years that I've known it. You see, that's our problem. We think the will of God is like a wheelbarrow which you push in front of you where you want it to go. Uh Uh-uh. See, the will of God is not what I want, but it's asking God for what He wants, the way He wants it. Well, I can tell that's too convicting. Let's move on. Second. (laughs) What will be convicting in the series? Number two, and this ought to be a great encouragement to you, the will of God is found in the Word of God. So you know what your first task is? Saturate your mind with the Scriptures. That's the renewing of the mind. If it doesn't offend you, brainwash your mind with a divine viewpoint. So you read it, you study it, you memorize it, you meditate upon it, you teach it. Until after a while you begin to think instinctively from a biblical perspective. Many years ago as a young man, I was greatly marked by Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, great Bible teacher of the last generation. And I was sitting in his office one day and I said, Dr. B, I'm really concerned about the will of God for my life. There's nothing I'm more committed to. And I'll never forget him, forget him whipping around in his brusque way and say, Young man, the will of God, 90% of it can be found from your neck up. And he'd turn around and tuck off. You know, and I'm sitting there. <laughs> you know, until all of a sudden it dawned on me. Why it was he spent so much time brainwashing my mind with a scripture. One day I said, man, I want to be a man of the word. And he looked at me with my Time magazine and said, son, as long as you continue to read that more than this, you'll know more about that than you know about this. (laughs) You always took off on me. Now, make no mistake about it, God leads by His Holy Spirit. God sovereignly uses circumstances. God uses the counsel of older Christians. But all of these will be ultimately controlled by the Word of God and will never be contrary to the Word of God. Several young people say, well, you know, I'm planning to get married. Well, that's interesting. Who are you going to marry? Well, I, I, and don't ask me if he's a Christian. <laughs> Girl said to me some time ago, and don't give me that Corinthians bit. She said, because I believe it's God's will that I marry him. Well, you see, my friend, I happen to know it's not God's will, period. And you don't even have to pray about it. That's already been determined. Save your breath. 
But it's amazing how much trouble we get into because we're constantly trying to manipulate God like we do our partner and other people close into us. You know, you're coming around, <laughs> you know, and maybe you can slip up on God's blind side. Well, that's too convicting too. All right, three. <laughs> See if you can joke this one now. Ultimately, the issue is not his will, but my will. It's not the revelation. It's the response. That's why our Lord said in John 7, 17, If any man wills to do his will, he shall know the teaching. I brought along something you can use as an illustration sometime, and it may help you to grasp the picture. Suppose I told you that on a sheet of paper, I got the will of God for your life. See, there's your name right across the bottom. You interested in it? You want to see what's in it? No, I don't know. Let me peek. What can you tell me about it? Well, it's opening up. I can tell you three things about it. First, it's good. Secondly, it's acceptable. Third, it's perfect. <laughs> Say, it's good. What's the matter with it? <laughs> See, that's a word we have raped in the English language. So if I sell you a car, you say, what kind of a car is this? I say, it's a good car. Oh, what's the matter? Is it broken down? <laughs> Because this is the generation of the superlative. It's excellent! Fantastic! <laughs> so when a Texan tells you that, you know he's lying. <laughs> Ex oh, by the way, you know what that word is? That's the same word that's used to describe the goodness of God. You want to know how good it is? It's as good as God is. How's it grab you? It's acceptable. In retrospect as well as prospect. See, some of us have lived on both sides of this Christian life. But, and I can remember in the old pagan days, boy, you know, Oh boy, man, it's the next beer bash. Wow, that's the one. You know, next morning, <laughs> where were we? It's perfect. Hey, that's one you ought to write down in your B. You know what that word means? That means something to which nothing can be added. He says you can't take one thing away from it or add one thing to it and in any way improve it. I say, man, that's getting fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> let's see what's on the inside. Great. So open it up. Whoops. Sorry to tear it. It's got the will of God and it's got a blank sheet with a place for your signature. And God says, sign it. Well, well, what do you got on here, Lord? <laughs> See, what we'd really like to do is, uh, just a minute, Lord, let me look it over here. Check it out. That's why I say the will of God is not primarily finding... God's will as it is following God's person. See, what kind of a person is it who's going to write on there? You know? You think he's going to shaft you? That's our idea of God. That's why we get we hassle. Most of us hassle half of our Christian life or more, the will of God, because we think with that ridiculous thought that somehow it's the choice between doing what I want to do and enjoying life and being fulfilled in life and doing what God wants to do and being wiped out. And the truth of the matter is, it's exactly the opposite. Fourth. And we are going to get into this in Jonah such as you have never seen. The will of God is always an expression of the love of God. 
The will of God is always an expression of the love of God. Why did God send Jonah to the Ninevites? Because he loved the Ninevites? Absolutely. But that's not all. Because he loved Jonah. And if he didn't, he would be at the bottom of the Mediterranean. You won't believe the extent that God Almighty goes to communicate His love to a rebellious prophet. Fifth, disobedience to the will of God is always costly. In fact, right under it, it's always a waste of time. I get a little weary of people who are constantly talking to me about the cost of doing the will of God. I think it's about time we start talking about the cost of not doing the will of God. That's the real issue. And we're going to see it spelled out in the life of Jonah. Man, what a price tag he paid. Jot down Numbers 13. Go back and read that story sometime. Here's the children of Israel wending their way through the wilderness, kind of a place called Kadesh Barnea, actually just a wide spot in the road, except for a decision they made there that determined their destiny. God had told them to go directly into the land. They said, look, let's not play the part of a fool. Let's be practical. Let's appoint a committee. <laughs> so they appointed a committee. Typical committee fashion, they come back with a majority and a minority report. Who were the two guys that brought back the minority report? Joshua, Caleb. I defy any one of you to give me any one of the names of the other ten men. They're all found in the opening verses of Numbers 13. You want to memorize them sometime. Everybody loves a winner. Majority says, man, we, we can't go up there. There are giants up in that land. Texas size. That's in the Hebrew text. And besides, we're just a group of God's grasshoppers. And the guys that brought the minority report said, let's go up at once and possess it. For we're well able. If you look in the context, it's because they believe God was able. Oh, but some American says, you know, the majority is always right. Really? Majority is frequently flat wrong. They were dead wrong. In fact, it was as a result of a majority decision that an entire generation perished in the wilderness. The only two guys who ever got into the land were Joshua and Caleb. The interesting thing is to study that record. 38 plus years on a merry-go-round. Going round and round and round. And when they get off, they're in exactly the same spot they were when they got on. Except all of them had died. And their bones were bleaching out in the desert sand. And even Moses never got into the land. Got to look at it in grace, but he never put a foot on that piece of property. Ladies and gentlemen, the greatest regret in Christian experience is not doing the will of God. Very interesting thing. I have never in my 35 years of ministry had someone say to me, you know, I got a great regret. I'd say, well, why don't you share it with me? I did the will of God. But you wouldn't believe how many people I run into. Who say, man, I'd give anything if I could go back. Doing the will of God is the delight of human experience. And we're going to study a man who didn't do it. 
find out what God wants to teach us. Now I want you to do something. I'm going to give you an assignment. You ready? I'll take my professorial rights. I want you to read the book as many times as you can read it. You know, the whole thing. <laughs> the whole thing, Ralph. Four chapters, not as long as two ordinary columns in your newspaper. And I'm going to ask you if you read it. See how many of you can read this book over and over again. Man, just suppose, you know, this is just a ridiculous figure. Let's suppose you could read it five times in the next five days. By the time you went back home, 25 times. When I was a young man starting out in the ministry, I read a book by A.T. Pearson who said, when I read this book for the 100th time, the following idea came to me. Man, if I read it five times, that's five times more than usual. So I want you to see how many times you can read the book of John this week. You game? <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, which is a lie. For the fact that you have preserved it down through history. The anvil of critics has often been worn thin, and most of them are dead and no better now. But we are the privileged ones who still have your word intact. And the wonderful person of the Holy Spirit sent to guide us into all truth. So we pray that this may be a wonderful week together as we saturate our souls with divine bread. And we pray that at the end of it, we may sense that God has spoken. And as a result, we have to act. So thank you for what you're going to do. We come expectantly through Christ our Lord. Amen.